Let's just pray together, shall we, before we get stuck into this. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for being with us this morning. Lord, I thank you for your tangible presence among us as we worship. Lord, we just pray, as we look into your word now, would you continue to speak to us? We thank you that you are a Lord who feeds. Lord, we pray, even as we study your word, would you come and feed us? Lord, would you nourish us? Lord, would you bring energy and, and vision and, uh, and just sound teaching to our, our, our intellects and also the nourishment that we need in our spirits? Lord, we look for you to be working among us, even as your word is preached. So come bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do genuinely feel that God will want to be speaking to individuals this morning and, uh, and, and maybe even um, sort of drawing you to a place where you, where you want to make a, just a personal response to him as you feel his commissioning call on your life. So I encourage you just to be in, a, a, in, a, in just a state of sort of open faith. You know, ready to hear from God, speaking personally to you, maybe uh, even more than, than you might usually. Okay, so, so let's get into this story. It's obviously a familiar account of the life of Jesus where, uh, where he feeds 5,000 people. Broadly speaking, there were two main objectives that Jesus had during his sort of ministry time while he was here on earth, before he was arrested and crucified and, uh, and then rose from the dead and, and ascended back into heaven. The first of those objectives would have been to show people who he really was, to declare the kingdom of God, to show people that he is 100% man, but that he's also 100% God. And uh, John, in his gospel, refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs, signs that point somewhere, that reveal truth. And this was part of what Jesus was doing. He, he was showing people, showing everybody, this is who I am. I am the Messiah. I, I am the Son of God. Come to take away the sin of the world. And his second objective was to model something to his disciples to show his disciples and by extension us as well who now follow Jesus how it is that we should live, how it is that we should continue with Jesus' mission and, and put that into practice ourselves, how we should just conduct ourselves in life. And those two objectives can be seen very clearly throughout this account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And what was at the forefront of Jesus' mind? What it was that he was showing both the crowd and showing his disciples on this day was compassion. And when Jesus looked at that crowd, he would have seen all sorts of people there. People who were for him and and excited about what he was saying. And also people who were against him and looking for ways to, to trip him up. He would have seen men and women, old and young, rich and poor But throughout the crowd, across everybody, the response of Jesus was compassion. And I believe that the more you press your life into Jesus, the more you will imitate his compassion for people. 
part of being a Christian is, is that we, we don't just kind of uh, listen to the philosophies of Jesus and the teaching in an academic way. We actually press our life into Jesus. We are now in Christ. And so his priorities become our priorities. And where Jesus is moved in compassion for the people, the more that we press ourselves into Jesus. So we are moved with compassion for people around us. Mark describes the people as sheep without a shepherd. And that was, seems to be a, a common expression that Jesus used. It's, it's recorded in the other Gospels as well. It also has Old Testament kind of resonance. It's an expression that's throughout the Old Testament as well. Sheep without a shepherd. Now, we can tend to kind of trivialise it, can't we? Because if you think of a field and you think of some sheep and, and the shepherd's not there, and, and maybe the sheep are just munching the grass and you think, ah. Oh. Or, or maybe they've kind of got through a gap in the fence and they're, they're chewing the grass up the verge and you think, ah, oh, naughty sheep. And, and you assume that later on in the day they'll get back into the field and it'll all be okay. And, and that's what we think, sheep without a shepherd, ah. Oh. Do you know, actually this expression didn't have that sort of feeling at all. To be sheep without a shepherd was a position of utter desolation. It, it was a position of utter lostness. It was, it was like the worst state that life could get into. Because if you were out on the sort of mountain wilderness and your shepherd was not there, you would not find food. You, you would be uh, preyed upon probably that very night. Actually, life was over. And, and for a sheep who, who found that his shepherd wasn't around, that there would be fear. That, that it was a position of terror. It was a position of desolation. And so when the Old Testament uses the expression sheep without a shepherd, it's, uh, it's, it's one of, of judgment and lostness. When in Isaiah, when he's prophesying against Babylon, and he says they will be like sheep without a shepherd. Utter desolation. You see it in Ezekiel and in Zechariah, and, and it talks about the clouds gathering, darkness coming. It talks about oppression, because there's no shepherd. Well, do you know, when God looks out at the world, and he looks at people in the world who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, that's how he sees them. Sheep without a shepherd, a, a position of lostness and desolation. Is that how you see people? When you look at people around you, people at work, people in your street, how do you judge them? How do you categorise them? Is it in terms of how well off they are? How successful they are? Just how happy they are? How old? How young? How much like you they are? Well, actually, when God looks at them, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. It may be that you're here this morning, you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation. Jesus is not the number one thing in your life right now. How do you feel about yourself? I've got to say that God looks at you. He sees you as sheep. He sees you as a sheep desperately needing a shepherd. And when uh, this expression is used in Matthew's Gospel, I'll put this verse up. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it goes on to say this. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So part of Jesus' compassion, part of his seeing people as they really are, is then to quickly switch on to mission. It's then the response of this compassion is mission. We need people. We need workers to go out and, and see the world as it really is. And, and, and we're to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into this harvest field. So when Jesus is here, he's got off the boat, the crowds are there, he's on the side of the mountain. He was modelling something for his disciples and he was getting them to do the work. And what Jesus does, first of all, is he identifies the need that people have. And, and out of the compassion that he has, he identifies the need and, uh, and then he sets about showing how that need will be met. Now, in identifying the need, Jesus has three responses. He taught people, he healed people, and then he fed people. I want to look at those three, first of all. You see, the first thing that Jesus does in response to this compassion that he feels for the people is that he teaches them. That's in, in our account, in our story we read in verse 34. When Jesus landed, he saw the large crowd. He had compassion on them. So he began teaching them many things. Do you know, the number one need that people have is for gospel truth. To hear the word of God. The gospel is referred to as the truth or or the way. Now, we should have confidence in the gospel that it is the way. That that it is the truth. That it, it gives an explanation of, of why we're here and, and where we're going and, and what life is all about and who God is. You know, these are massive questions. And, and people are in, increasingly at a loss to answer those questions. And yet the gospel, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the way. It's the, it's the answers that satisfies. It's what people need. And it holds together. As a worldview, the gospel is watertight. It holds together. It explains things. Do you know, nothing else explains like the gospel does. Nothing else explains these, these uh, sort of miracles and things which we hear about going on that science cannot explain. Strange healings out of the blue. How do we explain those? You know, the gospel explains them. This feeling that I have deep inside that that there's something more to life. The gospel explains that feeling. This sense of justice that I have, this sense of right and wrong, where does that come from? Why do I have a sense, an inherent sense of justice and fairness? It's hard to explain that, but you know, the gospel explains that. Why is it that every single culture, every single people group that has ever walked this earth has had in its kind of society some concept of worship. Why is that? It's difficult to explain. But you know, the gospel explains it. The gospel provides answers. Where did we come from? What happened at the very beginning? Where are we going? What's going to happen at the very end? The gospel explains it. 
It's what people need and, and we need to have confidence in it. The world is in a bad way. The root of all social problems and moral decline and crime is sin. It's sin. It's disobedience against God. It's because God has been rejected as the almighty creator of this world. But God, far from being distant or apathetic or judgmental, sent his own son into the world to deal with sin. He suffered. He died. In doing so, he broke the power of sin. And God is now busy gathering a people to himself. Each person trusting in Jesus to deal with their own sin. But together as a people, bringing glory to God forever. Now that's the gospel. And people need to hear that truth. Yeah, maybe you need to hear it. Search out the detail if, if you're hearing this kind of for the first time. People need to hear this. We need to be confident to tell people the truth. Yeah, we need to be well taught ourselves. We need to understand the whole word of God. This is all the gospel. This is all about Jesus. Let's understand it and and then let's be a gospel declaring church. Let's be a gospel declaring people. And that means that you're prepared to say in a crowd, Actually, I don't see it that way. You know, that is your perspective from your point of view. But actually, I just have a different perspective. So when someone says, oh, it's just all hopeless. You say, well, I can see, I can see that. But actually, I just, I see it differently. You know, people say, um, it's, I'm, I'm not a religious person. Or people say, Christianity is irrelevant to me. You can say, I I understand what you mean, but I have a different perspective. I I have a different worldview that actually interprets that differently. You know, I might use different words to those, but you see what I mean? You say, you can see it that way, but I see it differently. And we need to be confident that actually there is a different way, and it does hold together, and it is truth, it is the answers that people need, it is the gospel. People need to hear that. It's the truth. If you have compassion for people out there in the world, they need to know the truth. That was what Jesus did. He taught people many things. Secondly, though, he healed people. Now, if you were listening as I was reading this account from Mark's Gospel, you'd say, well, where does it say that Jesus healed people? Now, actually, this story of Jesus healing the five, not healing, feeding the 5,000, is the only miracle of Jesus that is in all four Gospels. And if you look at Matthew's Gospel, he tells a very uh, similar story, gives the account in very uh, much the same detail. Um, But he does stress some different things. So he says, in in Matthew 14, he says, Jesus uh, was on a boat, it's the same, that he landed on the shore, that's the same, that when he landed, he saw a crowd, that's the same. That he had compassion on them, that's the same. But it says, he saw the crowd had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Mark's gospel, he had compassion on them and he taught them many things. Matthew's gospel, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. I guess Jesus was doing both. Out of Jesus' compassion, he healed them. Now why did Jesus heal people. I think there are two reasons. 
Firstly, because Jesus' love and concern extended to their physical well-being. And when Jesus met people, he was concerned with the the state of their hearts. And he taught them and he gave them the gospel and he, he dealt with their sin. But he also healed them. Last week, we were looking at the the paralytic who was lowered through the roof down to to Jesus' feet. And the first thing that Jesus said to him was, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus could have left it there, couldn't he? He could have said, okay, now your eternal security is now in place. You know, you're saved. You should be really pleased. I'll see you later. But no, he doesn't say that. And get up and walk. Our mission is to bring the whole of creation back under the lordship of Jesus. And, uh, and, and so we, we shouldn't separate the, the spiritual from the physical. Jesus is interested in all of you. He's interested in people. It's not a case of sort out the sin, but never mind the circumstances of your life. You know, as long as you're saved, we're not worried about the pain, the illness, the, the suffering, the oppression. Now, Jesus is, is interested in all of it. And, and when Jesus' kingdom comes, there is healing. That's what happens. But there is a second reason why I believe Jesus healed people. And that's because people need to see the power of the gospel demonstrated. You can tell people about Jesus. But when the gospel is shown in its power, it, it gets people's attention. And, uh, and people take notice. It's words with power. Our society loves words, doesn't it? It's like, my opinion, your opinion, that's what you think. Oh, it's interesting, this is what I think. And you can debate and discuss. But when there is power, when someone is healed, when, when someone is, is released from, from demonic oppression, now that's difficult to, to argue against. It's words with power. When the disciples were sent out by Jesus earlier in Mark chapter 6, they went out preaching the gospel. They also delivered people and healed them. It says in, in Mark 6, 12 to 13, they went out and they preached that people should repent. That's the gospel. They taught people. But they drove out many demons. They anointed sick people with oil and healed them. Now, these guys weren't doctors. They were just fishermen and the like. And yet, under the power of God, they went out and healed people as well. And then that continues through the book of Acts. It's proclamation of the gospel accompanied by power. Not just the apostles. You see Stephen and Philip and guys like that too. In Acts, I'll just read one. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to Samaria. He proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowd heard Philip... And saw the miraculous signs he did. They all paid close attention to what he said. I'm just saying there is a need. There is a need for people to see the gospel demonstrated in power. To show the world that Christianity is an an empty philosophy. It's not a dead religion. It's not just words. This is the power of the living Christ. And, and he comes in power to demonstrate the, the truth of the gospel. And in power to save. So let's, let's just be in faith. Let's have our eyes open. 
let's, let's look for answers to prayer in miraculous ways. I'm prompted by front edge again. Because that's the model of the front edge weekend. It's, it's, it's healing and, and it's the gospel. And you put the two together and it's a powerful combination. There's healing on the streets, of, as we've heard. You know, I feel we need to be behind that. That's, that's happening in this city. People being healed. But it's not just healing on the streets. It's healing at your friend's house. It's, it's healing in the, the canteen at work. It's, it's healing in your front room. Let's, let's uh, just look for opportunities. So Jesus met the needs. He taught people. He healed people. And then lastly, of course, he fed people. And why did Jesus feel fed? Well, why did Jesus feed people on that day? Well, I believe it's because people need to see the gospel backed up with mercy. And this now obviously becomes the main focus of this story, doesn't it? We shouldn't overlook the fact that Jesus taught people and healed people. But surely in this story, we can't overlook the fact that Jesus fed people as well. He cared for people's basic physical needs. And we can, we can over-spiritualise this story. We can look for all kinds of metaphors in it. I think it's just a case that there was a crowd of people there. They were hungry and Jesus fed them. It's, it's really not more complicated than that. It was the outworking of his compassion for people. And do you know what? There is a mandate on the church. It's easy to overlook. It's a mandate to reach out to the poor and the needy with acts of mercy. The church in this country has largely abdicated its responsibility to be the primary agent of justice in this world. And it's done that by outsourcing these things to government departments, to uh, non-church-based agencies, all of whom are doing a pretty good job. But you know, this is the mandate on the church. We should be leading the way in just showing mercy to the world and helping the poor. The Bible shows that God's heart goes out to the alien, the stranger, the broken-hearted and the poor. Our attitude should be the same as the Good Samaritan. We know that story, don't we? Tim Keller, in his his book, The Call of Jericho Road, he says, why would somebody like that Good Samaritan risk his safety, destroy his schedule, become dirty and bloody to help a needy person of another race, of another social class? But more importantly, why would Jesus then tell us To go and do likewise. There is a need out there. And when we move in compassion to the world around us, it's not just a case of teaching people the gospel, though I think that is people's number one need. It's not just a case of healing people as we show this gospel is a gospel of power. We also need to be a people who respond in acts of mercy. Just helping people. There are poor in Winchester. There are the homeless, the hungry, people who just need a friend. In your street there will be people who need a friend, who need an advocate. 
There'll be people in financial crisis. People experiencing family breakdown. There are the elderly who just need someone to talk to. And I know that many of you work very hard in in just this kind of way. Whether it's work into the prison or or involvement in the the night shelter or the basics bank or or your support and work for the the pregnancy crisis centre or a myriad other ways. But have have we got it right? I, I just feel there's more for us to do as a church together. And, and this doesn't start by us putting on a program and inviting people to sign up to it. It starts in your heart. It starts as you feel the commission of God to say, oh yeah, it's actually me. And, and as a church, we, we join together in that and we work together and we support one another, encourage one another and pray for one another. But, but yeah, we, we don't impose this. It's, we want to respond to, to the prompting of God in your heart. That rise of faith that says, yeah, I can do it. Because that's what I want to say now. The next thing that God does is he comes and he makes an unreasonable request. You see, maybe you're a Christian. I hope so. You look at the world and you see the need. And maybe you kind of nod sagely and say, yep, yep, there is a needy world out, out there. That is the situation that the disciples were in. And they were probably quite excited to see what Jesus was going to do next. How was he going to solve this problem? How was he going to sort this out? But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. Now there was, their response to that was, was probably a kind of shock, a bit of a nervous laugh. <laughs> it's like, nice one, Jesus. Good joke. Thought you were serious for a minute then. <laughs> and then they realise that Jesus isn't joking. I thought, oh, he's, he's crazy. Oh, the, the heat must have got to him. I mean, how? How possibly could we do this? Why is Jesus telling us to do it? It was an unreasonable request. Based on their resources... And a practical assessment of what might happen next, it was A, unfeasible. And it was B, uh, just a drop in the ocean. They did a quick count up. They thought, well, maybe we could get together eight months wages. If we sell a few of the fishing boats, if we dig up the odd field, you know, maybe we can scrabble together eight months wages. They were probably doing the sums very quickly in their head. And then they thought, but even, even if we got that amount and we bought bread, it would only be like a tiny crumb for everybody. It would be a drop in the ocean. In John chapter 6, verse 7, that's where he's telling the story. It says, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. It's like, it's not only unfeasible, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. Well, look, are you ready for God to come and make an unreasonable request of you? It's one thing to see the needs that people have. Their, their spiritual needs, their, their physical needs. It's quite another for Jesus to come to you personally and say, I want you to be the answer. And, and you know, it might be that you just feel the call of God on you even now. You know, maybe to preach the gospel in a, in a new way. Maybe it's just to, 
to speak up a bit more publicly in, in your workplace when, when you know that there are lies coming in and you think, I've let them go. You think, no, I just feel the call of God on me to, to make a stand, to, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Maybe you feel the call of God on you to, to be praying for people for the healing because you just know there's sick people here and, and, and you just want to pray for them. Maybe you feel the call of God to be investing in the welfare of others, either within the church or outside the church as you bring a ministry of mercy to this community. Maybe you feel the call of God on you to go to the nations, to actually give your entire life to the call of God on you, to do something radical. And like the disciples, it may be that you have some arguments going on in your your mind. The first argument is, it is not feasible. I'm not like that. It doesn't fit my character. You know, I've tried it. It didn't really work that well. It was a previous season in my life. It's all done and dusted. Now I'm I'm just too busy. Now now I'm I'm too poor. I'm, I'm struggling enough in my own life. Think of my job. Think of my family. It's just not feasible. And the second argument is, well, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. You know, I look at that need, it's so big, what can I do, just little old me? Even if I, you know, gave 100%, I, it would be nothing. It, w- it wouldn't even scratch the surface. It's a drop in the ocean. Which, you know, when many people invite Jesus into their lives, become Christians... I don't realise that they are now potential recipients of the call of Jesus in their lives. It's part of the great privilege of being adopted into God's family. It's not harsh. You know, it's, it's, it's not a demand. It's, it's a privilege that God partners us in his mission. Compare the story of uh, Jonathan and his armour bearer that uh, many of us will know. It's in 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan was the son of the king of the children of Israel. But the Philistine army was encamped all around. And the Philistines had made it illegal for the Israelites to own swords. They had outlawed all blacksmiths. There were two swords in the whole of the Israelite army. One of them was in Jonathan's hand. And he looked across at the Philistines across the way and something stirred within him. He thought, I can do something about that. And he said to his armour bearer, he said, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And so he and his armour bearer crossed over, attacked the Philistine army. And uh, meanwhile, the king, Saul, he sat under a tree with his priests. He was uh, essentially doing nothing. Now, I'm not saying that being together and praying is, is wrong. We need to do that. But you know, it might just be that God is calling you to be the answer. You. And maybe he looks for a faith that says, well, perhaps the Lord. Perhaps. Just perhaps. Yeah, it looks like a, a completely hopeless case. It looks like the odds are stacked against me. But just perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will grant me success. Perhaps he will be with me. You see, the bottom line in this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is that he showed up with the power. He performed a miracle. Five tiny 
barley loaves. They would have been about that big. Two fish, which were probably quite minging. You imagine they'd been in this kid's lunchbox all day. They probably would have done some good seeing a fridge. Five tiny loaves, two pretty repulsive fish, and yet the whole crowd, 12,000 people perhaps with women and children, were satisfied. Twelve traditional Jewish baskets, which were about this sort of size, were filled as a result. This was no miracle of generosity, as everybody realised they should share their own lunch. This was no model for the the communion service. Everybody had a tiny crumb and and was spiritually satisfied. Now, as a result, these people thought that Jesus was the prophet Elisha. Because if you you read back in your Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was the last person to do this. He fed a crowd with nothing. And I thought, this is Elisha come back. And we need to make this guy our king. And if he doesn't want to be our king, we'll make him be our king by force. Now that doesn't happen when there's been a little miracle of sharing. No, this was an amazing outpouring of God's power. The food was multiplied. The people were satisfied. Do you know, the mission that we are on remains Jesus' mission. He just calls us to get involved. He calls you to bring the the little that you have and offer it to him in faith. And he supplies the power. Following Jonathan's step of faith as he went out and attacked the Philistines, God sent a, a confusion among the whole Philistine army. They went into panic and the whole lot of them were defeated. Now that was inconceivable from the start. Jonathan didn't know that was going to happen. Think of the story of Mordecai and and Esther. And and Mordecai says to Esther, who knows? You might have been made queen for just a time such as this. But who knows? If I was in Esther's position, I'd want something a bit better than who knows. You know, like it might work. It might not. But she says, I will go and see the king. If I perish, I perish. Now what happens is, the, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people are saved. But that was inconceivable from the start. And once Jesus had given thanks for this tiny offering of food, everyone was satisfied. It was inconceivable from the start. Who knows what God can achieve through one man or one woman who sees a need and says, I can do something about that. Well, why don't I try and do something about that? And do you know God supplies the power. I can talk about Ali, she's not here. She was in her early 20s when God called her into Christian counselling. She opened up a magazine, she saw the words counselling in the Holy Spirit and and the words just kind of leapt out at her and she said, I can do that. Now, it might not seem so strange now, but, but I mean, Ali in her early 20s, I mean, she was gorgeous but in a slightly dizzy kind of way, you know, and uh, let's hope this doesn't get back to her. Um, and, and actually, when she said this, we, we just kind of laughed. <laughs> he said, well, come on, be serious now. But what she did is she just enrolled on a little counselling course that dear old Reg was running in the church at that time, pastoral counselling. And, and you know what? Countless women, and a few guys as well, have now been helped and pointed to Jesus 
and moved on in their Christian life within the church through the work of the the Pregnancy Crisis Centre in in Winchester and and now nationally as she trains other people to do the same. God is using her. It started with a simple act of faith, a seeing a need and saying, actually, I can do that. Why don't I do that? Do you know what? I think God just wants to commission people. Are you open to the call of God? 